This is our third week in a new series called Questions, where we're going through a number of different questions that were asked to Jesus. And it's a really a good time um, to be together and just kind of read this kind of stuff. And uh, there's an outline for the sermon if you want. There's questions on the back. And I know that's very helpful. Middle school and high school students who are here for Family Worship Sunday, um, you can, if you want, grab a little um, piece of paper that's in uh, near the amphitheaters and you can follow along and take notes in there as well. So make sure that you have that. And I do want to say thank you for being here. This week, when we look at this question, the last two weeks have been about questioners who came to Jesus to try to trick him, try to get him into trouble. This week, however, we have a genuine person who's really, really asking a question of Jesus, and he really wants to know the answer. And he's not trying to trick Jesus or anything like that. But what we will see is the way Jesus responds to this man is in some ways not what we would expect. And uh, it can be challenging and it can be hard. And the reason why it's hard is because what Jesus does is give him honest feedback. And we live in a culture that pretends like we really enjoy honest feedback. But in reality, we don't really want honest feedback unless the honest feedback is exclusively positive. If it ever is negative or has a hint of criticism at all, or is, you know, challenging anything, then we're like, oh, gosh. How can you say that? You're like, you asked me for my opinion. I gave it. And it's like, yeah, but your opinion should align with mine. So how dare you? And as you know, in our culture, we have some comedic experiences like that. You see it in movies. You see it in TV shows all the time. And here's the scene. You've seen it a thousand times. It's a wife getting dressed for this important party. She looks to her husband and says, how do I look? And the husband just, oh, my gosh. And it was like this ethical dilemma. I don't know. Like, you know, should I tell her honestly? Should I not? You know how that works. And so the reason why we all find that humorous is because we understand that honest feedback at times is not necessarily welcomed. (laughs) I remember when I got honest feedback, I was in college. I gave a paper to my professor, professor I was close with, guy that I really enjoyed. I thought we were close. I gave this paper to him. I thought, man, he's going to be blown away with this. Gave it to him, and I got it back after a couple weeks with all these comments on it. And the last sentence was, I think it's best for you to rewrite this. (laughs) And I was devastated. And I was devastated because the honest feedback that he gave me challenged my very identity. Because I thought that we were friends, you know. I thought we were close. I thought I was a good student. And lo and behold, that one little sentence, you may want to rewrite this. Man, it challenged everything, and it was hard to deal with. Today's question is one of those kinds of things where the questioner is going to receive a devastating blow to his identity, to the center of who he believes he is, not because Jesus is mean in his response, not because Jesus hates him, but as we will see, it's precisely because Jesus loves him that he's so devastated. So let's pick it up, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey to Jerusalem, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house 
or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Father, this is deep. This is profound. And in some ways, Lord, this is hard to hear. And so God, would you help us as a church to never try to soften the edges of the Bible? God, would you help us to never try to tame and domesticate the way the Bible describes Jesus. For we take Jesus as he is or we don't have him at all. So God, as we enter into a passage like this, grant us grace. Give us the ability to hear, to think, to believe, to feel the things we ought so that there will be no confusion and that there will be clarity about the things you have said. So God, grant us all your grace, I pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. The last two weeks, the questions were, like I said, trying to trick Jesus. This week, however, it's different. If you notice in verse 17, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and a man runs up to him, and it says that he knelt before him and asked him this question. Now, the fact that the man ran to Jesus and knelt is the sign of sincerity, for in that culture, nobody bowed the knee before anyone who they did not respect. And so we know the man respected Jesus. We know that the man knew that he was a teacher, and probably the man knew that his teaching was well-respected and honored because it was accurate. And so the man comes to Jesus asking him this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we can't sleep on that phrase, inherit eternal life, because nobody makes for themselves an inheritance. It's something given to you. So the man is understanding the reality that I want to inherit eternal life. It has to be given to me. But he asks the question, what must I do in order to have eternal life given to me? The eternal life is not about the longevity of life in the sense of one successive event after another that goes on forever. The word eternal is really... It's a descriptive of the quality of the life. It's eternal in the sense of it is limitless. It has no boundaries. It has no real way of being described, even with our imaginations. It's inconceivable how great and awesome this kind of life is. And it's something that we receive. It's a promise God has given to his people that one day you will receive eternal life, the abundant life the everlasting life, the quality of life, which will satisfy you in every imaginable way. And if you notice how the man addresses Jesus when he approaches Jesus, he says, good teacher, good teacher. And Jesus is going to really focus on that. And he's going to highlight that with his question in verse 18. Jesus asks the man, why do you call me good? For no one is good except God alone. Now, some people take this as saying, oh, Jesus, you see what he's doing here? He's, he's saying that he's not God. He's saying, you're right, I'm not good, I'm not God. Only God is good, and so therefore, yeah, I'm not God. But that's not what Jesus is doing. It's not what Jesus is doing. And f- at first, Jesus wants to address the way the man addresses him by understanding that he's being called a teacher, but not just any teacher, but a good teacher. And good means the kind of quality which is incomparable. There is nothing like it. And Jesus is saying, you need to understand that only God is good. Right? You get that. Only God is good. Now, what's interesting is the man is going to come to Jesus asking him, "How? what do I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus' first thing is, you need to realize first and foremost, only God is good. But then what we're going to see is the man is going to say, ah, but
but I'm good too. See, Jesus, how good I am? And so what Jesus is doing is right from the beginning is making sure that this man understands that maybe he doesn't understand the term good like he thinks he does. Only God is good. Yes, I know that, but me too. No, 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 only God is good. Why no, but I am too. <laughs> Do you see what's happening? So look at what Jesus does. He wants to make sure the man understands only God is good. Now, in response to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. In other words, Jesus gives him a list of commands. And what Jesus does is he simply reiterates what the man already knows. You see, the people of Israel were redeemed out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. They were redeemed, they were restored, they were rescued from there. And then after they were redeemed, after they were rescued, after they had escaped their bondage and their slavery, we remember in the Mosaic Covenant, that then God gave them laws. So the laws were the consequence, the laws were the second thing to govern the people who had already been redeemed. The laws don't redeem you. The laws govern those who have already been redeemed. So if you read in Exodus chapter 19, God reminds the people, I redeemed you. I brought you out on wings like eagles. And then Exodus chapter 20, you find the Ten Commandments. So it goes like this. I redeemed you and I made you my own. And now I'm going to tell you as my own how you should live. And here are the laws. So what Jesus does is remind the man of the laws. You know the laws. These laws that God gave us because he redeemed us. So you don't obey the law in order to be redeemed. You obey the law because you have been redeemed. So inheriting eternal life is about God redeeming you. And the evidence of whether or not you've been redeemed is your obedience. So Jesus gives him the laws, basically saying, evaluate your life. Have you been obedient? Okay, you have. Well, then it's a sure sign that you've been redeemed. But look at what the man does, verse 20. The man says to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. You know what's really interesting about the, what Jesus quotes is he only quotes the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. You notice that? And the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments are the commandments that God gives us and how we should relate to each other. So that's what's called the horizontal obedience. It's all the commands that God gives us on how we should relate to each other horizontally. Do you notice that Jesus omits, he completely just ignores, completely does not explain at all the first four commandments, which are always oriented towards God? Do you notice that? And so what's really interesting is the man affirms his obedience to all of the horizontal laws. I've done all these, Jesus. I've loved my neighbor. I haven't mistreated my father and mother. I don't steal. I don't bear false witness. I don't murder or commit adultery. I haven't defrauded anyone. I've kept all the horizontal laws. And Jesus doesn't argue with him or anything like that. But I love what Matthew does in Matthew chapter 19, verse 20. His description of what's happening here, the man's response is not just, I have kept all these things from my youth, but listen to what the man says in Matthew 19, 20. The young man said to Jesus, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? In other words, I've, I've been obedient horizontally to everything, but I still feel some sort of lack inside of me. Something's off, and I don't know what it is. Jesus, what should I do about that? What should I do about the nagging ache in my soul that is telling me something's missing? I'm not quite satisfied. I'm not quite peaceful. I'm not quite content. So Jesus, it's really interesting what he does. 
I think the fact that he omitted the first four laws of the Ten Commandments and that the man feels the sense of lack inside of him, I think the two are connected. I think in some way the man's connection or, or lack of connection to God and the fact that he feels like he's missing something, I think it's related to the fact that Jesus never mentioned anything about the vertical obedience, which tells me you can do all of the external Christianly things towards other people and yet not be connected to God. You could go to church. You could go to all the Bible studies, all of them. You could sign up for every class and serve in every ministry. You can take food to those who need dinner because they just had a baby. You could lend people your car, your home. You could do all of these Christian things. And yet deep down you feel, man, there's a lack of intimacy that I sense. I'm missing something here. Because we can sometimes be blinded by our horizontal obedience at the exclusion of taking inventory of how is our vertical obedience going? How's that dimension? So this man feels lack. Notice in verse 21, Jesus doesn't argue with the man about his obedience. He doesn't say, dude, you haven't been obedient. You too have done bad things. What's wrong with you, liar? He doesn't do any of that. He, does, he, just, he bypasses all of that stuff. Instead, look what Jesus does. He looks at him and he loves him and he says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus doesn't correct him about his personal assessment and his obedience. Jesus simply highlights the man's lack. You lack one thing. And because of that one thing, Jesus says, go do these four things. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. Come follow me. That's what you need to do. That will correct your lack. The one thing he lacks is vertical obedience. He lacks obedience to the first four commandments. What I mean is this. Remember the first and second commands? You should have no other gods before me. And the second, no idols. And notice Jesus never asks the man whether or not he has any gods before God or if he has any idols. Jesus doesn't say anything about that. He simply tells the man to go and sell all that he has and give to the poor, and he will have treasures in heaven and come and follow him. Now, why do I think this is Jesus coming to the man to show him that what he's lacking is obedience vertically evidenced by his idolatry. I think that because of verse 22. In response to what Jesus says, it says in verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. The one thing that that man lacked was that he had great possessions that possessed him. The one thing that he lacked was vertical obedience. The man had other gods before God. The man had an idol in his heart that kept him from intimacy with God. And that idol, the core problem which led to the sensation that he was lacking something, was his riches, his commitment to his wealth. So the core problem of this man is that he had an idol that he put before God. And in spite of all of his worldly success, in spite of all of his moral success, he had that nagging feeling that something was missing. And Jesus is pointing out what's missing. 
What's missing is you are not committed to me. You are not committed to God. You are committed to your riches. You serve your idols. You know, sometimes I think we could stop and it would, we would do well to just posit this and to ask ourselves the question, are there times where I feel as though I'm lacking something, that I'm missing something? Are there times in which I feel distant from God? Are there times in which I feel as though the intimacy that other people talk about that they have with God, that I'm missing out on that? I don't have that. Because this story right here could be a great indicator and helpful to us to know how to navigate those waters. What we would do well to do is to take inventory of our own hearts. What in our hearts do we want most? What do I long for most? And when you sense that you don't want God very much, The greatest prayer you could pray is not, God, I want you more. It's, God, would you give me want? And more than that, would you give me the want to want you? Because I just want stuff. And this is the man's problem. He asked Jesus, what must I do? There has to be something more I must do. And in spite of all that the man had accomplished economically, all that he had accomplished socially, morally, even religiously, he still felt empty. And the reality is anyone who counts on what they do in order to get eternal life will find that in spite of all of their successes, there is an emptiness and an insecurity that lingers. And from this frame of mind, my question is, how in the world can anyone be sure that you have ever accomplished enough? How do you know? You have enough. Enough morals. Enough obedience. Enough success. Enough education. How do you know when enough is enough? One of the challenges that I would want to make sure that you as young adults and high school students, you understand is you... One day you will walk across that stage as high school students and you will receive your high school diploma and it will be such a great day. And then grown-ups will come up to you and they will ask you, so what are you going to do now? And they will make you feel so small. And then you're like, I don't know. So then you go to college and then one day you'll graduate from college. And then they'll ask you, same people, same barbecue, same backyard, what are you going to do now? And you're like, I don't know. Great. So then you're going to apply to all of the jobs that pay $100,000 or more. And you're going to be shocked when you don't get a phone call. (laughs) Because you have been raised by the parents who are giggling right now that you deserve the best. You got trophies for everything, even though you sucked at it. (laughs) Some of you aren't clapping. And so you will walk with high school students, you will, you will walk through this life going, why aren't I getting this job? And why can't I buy a house at 22? And you demand in your life what took your parents 30 years to get. Instant gratification. All that to say, in spite of everything that you may or may not accomplish, economically, educationally, whatever degrees you get or whatever, there's going to come a point where you will stop, the music will stop, the relationships will stop, the noise will stop, and you will be left with your own thoughts, and you will ask yourself the question, now what? A day will come where you will be the guest of honor at your own retirement party, and people will ask you, now what are you going to do? And you'll be driving in your 30-foot RV down to Florida (laughs) and you'll do all the things you ever dreamed of doing and on your way back you'll go now what (laughs) that day's coming and many of us are laughing because we we're there when those days come it's how God is showing you There's something more. 
I want you to never be satisfied with the things of this world, but enjoy the things of this world because they all point to me. And I'm the true treasure. So use these things, enjoy these things, but never forget the fact that these things point to a greater joy and a greater satisfaction. It's Jesus. So watch what Jesus does. Go back to verse 21. This is just mind-blowing what Jesus does. Jesus has exposed this man's idolatry. That's why he's disheartened and discouraged. But look at, and just make sure we understand what happens. And Jesus, after the man says, I've done all this. I'm good, Jesus. But what do I still lack? Jesus looked at him. Jesus addresses him. Jesus makes long eye contact with him. Jesus doesn't kick the dirt and turn away and turn his back. He looks at the man deeply, intentionally. He regards the man and it says he loves him. And whatever is about to happen, this is God's love in action. This is God loving us. And Jesus, loving the man, he says to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. It's not a scowl. It's not an expression of disgust on Jesus' face. It's love. Mark says Jesus loved him. So in the midst of that love, Jesus points out his lack. That is to say, Jesus points out his sin. That is to say, Jesus points out his idolatry. If you want me, Jesus says, then you need to rid yourself of your idols. You have to rid yourself of your idols of wealth, security, and achievement. Because what you lack is intimacy with God on the vertical dimension. And yes, you've done all these horizontal things, but the vertical dimension is lacking. You have a God before me. You have idols in your heart. You need to rend your heart. You need to expose the idols, and you need to crush them. And how you need to do that is you need to go and sell all that you have. Give to the poor. And the man leaves, as it says, verse 22, disheartened and sorrowful for he had great possessions. What Jesus is asking this man to do is the unthinkable. In this man's mind, it's unthinkable. You can't ask me to do that. You can't ask me that, Jesus. You can't ask me to give up everything I've ever known and loved. You can't ask me to give up security. You cannot ask me to give up everything to follow you. That's unfair. It's impossible. No one can do that, Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible for God to love us and the experience we feel of God's love is discouragement? Is it possible for God to love us so much that we are disheartened by it? You mean to tell me God's love produced pain in this man? Yes. You mean to tell me that God's love left the man discouraged? Yes. You mean to tell me God loves this man so much that he intentionally disheartened the man? Yes. But I thought God's love is positive and encouraging. I thought God's love makes me feel good about me. I thought God's love is a boost me up (laughs) isn't God's love supposed to just make me sore well if you think God's love can only make you sore on the heights of the clouds make you feel so encouraged and happy that you just overcome giddiness you need a new definition of God's love 
Just imagine if you got a new puppy at your house. I love puppies. And you just love the puppy. And you love the puppy so much that you're going to make sure that you don't do anything negative to the puppy. Don't train the puppy. Don't teach him to not poop in your closet. (laughs) Don't teach him to not chew on your shoes because you don't want to dishearten the puppy. You love puppies. But don't you understand that what you love more than puppies is an adult dog that doesn't take dumps in your closet? So the one thing God loves more than sinners is saints. God loves sinners, but you know what he loves more? When sinners are redeemed and they live in holiness. That's what God loves. And so if we think God's love cannot ever produce anything negative inside of me, you don't know God's love. You've never been loved by God. Because God must start his love of you by reminding you, you need me. And the only way that we can ever see our need of God is for him to expose us that we don't have what it takes. Something is off with us. We need more than ourselves. So Jesus is asking this man, can you imagine for a moment this for me? Can you imagine your life without your money? Imagine it's all gone. You have no home, you have no savings, you have no cash, you have no one serving you. Just imagine that for a moment, you've lost it all. All you have is me. Is that enough for you? And the man obviously, he can't handle that. No, God is not enough for me, I need my stuff disheartened, discouraged, sorrowful, away he goes. And the same scenario can be applied to all of us. What if your idol is your success in sports? And what if you, like me, have a debilitating injury that causes you to never be able to play your sport again? And God exposes the rampant idolatry in your own heart, and he commands you, take a look at your own heart. Am I enough for you? Because I remember sitting in a bathtub with a broke down ankle, weeping because God had taken baseball from me, asking me, Phil, do inventory. Am I enough for you? And to have to admit before God Almighty, no, you're not. I need baseball. I need you plus baseball. Or what if your business, your work, your social standing, your nice family with your kids that don't cuss and get good grades? What about your morality or your religiosity? What if all these things are the things that you are looking to to give yourself worth, identity, and value every day of your life? What if one day God takes that from you and God causes you to ask the question, if I take everything from you, can you live with that? Am I enough for you? This is why we have the book of Job in the Bible. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And yet I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You can't do that if Jesus is your cosmic slot machine. You can't do that if Jesus is who you go to to get other stuff. Jesus must be the end for which you live, or he's nothing to you. This seems harsh, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, if you want your idolatry, you can have it, but you can't have me with it. It's me or nothing. You can have no other gods before me. You can have no other idols but me. The one thing that you can glutton yourself on and never be in sin is me, Jesus says. This episode is just a depiction of when Jesus says this phrase. Do you remember this? If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. 
If you want to know what that phrase means, this story is what Jesus means. I'm not sure why we think that it's more loving to lessen the bar of discipleship as though we're saying it's easy to be a Christian. Just lower the bar, make it easy. Where everyone can be a Christian. That, what? It seems like Jesus is always trying to raise the bar. You notice that? It seems like Jesus is doing one thing. One thing I know for sure Jesus is always trying to do. He's trying to make the crowds that follow him smaller. You come because you get your fill. But unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of the eternal life. The people are like, oh, oh. That's hard. Unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Ooh, that's hard. Following Jesus is not like responding to a friendship, Facebook friendship request. You know what I'm talking about? Would you be my friend? Oh, sure. No strings attached. No sacrifice. You can become friends with people on Facebook and never talk to them again. That's not Christianity. Deny yourself everything and follow me. That's Christianity. Tim Keller, he writes this. If you want to be a Christian, of course you need to repent of your sins. But after you've repented of your sins, you'll have to repent of how you use the good things that God has given you in your life to fill the place where only God should be. If you want intimacy with God, if you want to get over that sense that something is missing in your life, it will have to come because God is the love of your heart, the love of your mind, the love of your soul, and the love of your strength. The man could not imagine life without his wealth, and Jesus wasn't enough for him, so he left sorrowful. Brothers and sisters, God loves us more than we could ever think or imagine. So look at the response of this man, disheartened and sorrowful because he wants his stuff more than he wants God. Look at the response of those who are watching. Verse 23. And Jesus looked around. There's that word again. Jesus is looking. He's taking inventory of what's going on. He sees everything that's happening. He sees what's going on around him. He's seeing the people's facial expressions. Probably everyone's going, did he just say what I think he said? Did that man just, did this just happen? Oh, my God. And so Jesus, seeing everyone's face in disbelief for what just happened, he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed? They were amazed because the disciples lived at a time in which the culture taught, the Jewish culture in the first century taught, not that wealth was evil. They did not teach that. They taught that wealth was the reward for good moral behavior. They accepted the view that if you lived a good life, then God will reward you with prosperity. They assumed that material prosperity meant you were living a good life and that God was pleased with you. So the more possessions you had, the more wealth you had, the more God was pleased with you, which meant you were closer to the kingdom of God than other people. And then Jesus tells a wealthy man, you need to lose it all for me. Not only that, but you have all this wealth and you're not going to get in the kingdom. It blows the minds of those people in that culture. You mean to tell them? Wait, what? I thought the wealthy were the successful because God has blessed them with prosperity. Now you're telling me that prosperity is not a measure of blessing? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is Christianity, not karma. We think, and and there's Christians in this room, some of you sitting in these pews who actually believe, man, the more I go to Bible study, the more I read my Bible, the more I do this, that, and the other, I know that God will shower his blessings on me. That's karma. That's not Christianity. 
Remember at the end of this passage where Peter says, we lost everything, what are we gonna get? And Jesus reminds him, you're gonna get the church. Brothers and sisters and mothers. I remember saying that one time in a Christian camp and people laughed. What kind of reward is that? And I said, well, Jesus said in Mark chapter three, verse 33 through 35, when they came and said, your, brother and your, your brothers and your mother is here. Instead, he looked at his disciples, the church, and he said, these are my brothers and mother. The church is our reward. <laughs> and then he said, you're going to have all this stuff. And do you remember that little thing right there? With persecutions. How many prosperity gospel preachers, heretics and false teachers you've seen online and you've seen on TV that quote this kind of stuff? A hundredfold you're going to get. Just sow the seed of faith. Every time he skips with persecutions. Brothers and sisters, do not tamper with the word of God. So Jesus is challenging their worldview. Jesus is challenging their presuppositions. Jesus is challenging their very understanding of the world itself. And the people are blown away. They're amazed, it says. So then he repeats it again, just in case you missed it. He says, verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Oh, okay. Jesus is not saying that having wealth is evil. What he's saying is having wealth as your functional God and savior is evil. Jesus is not saying that you can't have possessions, but what he is saying is you can't allow your possessions to possess you. He's not saying that those who are rich are automatically excluded from the kingdom, he is saying that it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven since they trust their riches more than they trust the riches of Christ's grace. Are we square on that? So it is no more morally advantageous to be poor than it is to be rich. For if you're trusting in your riches or your poverty, you are not trusting in Christ. Therefore, you are excluded from the kingdom. It's Christ or nothing. So Jesus says this in verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What do you do with the text like that? Well, the false teachers and prosperity preachers will tell you that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the camel gate. And it was very narrow and very difficult to get in. But if you took all the stuff off your camel and dropped your camel onto his knees and pushed him from behind and you squeezed his side, you could really get him in there if you tried hard enough. Literally, that is what is being taught by prosperity, gospel preaching, false teachers, and heretics. Here's the newsflash. There is no such thing, and there never has been a such thing as a camel gate. See, facts are a tricky little thing. History, no such thing. Archaeology, no such thing. It was invented in the 10th century. There's no such thing as the camel gate. So what is Jesus teaching? Big sand desert animal fitting through the eye of a needle. Impossible. Literally, he means can't happen. We're, we're good on that, right? <laughs> the creativity and imaginations of those whose minds are fixated on their riches are able to twist scripture and manipulate it in ways that I'm profoundly astonished at. So don't be lured by this nonsense, brothers and sisters. The word of God. Stick to the word of God. Look at their response, verse 26. They were exceedingly astonished. <laughs> what is happening right now? This is unbelievable. So the disciples respond, then who can be saved? If anyone in the whole world could be saved, it is obviously the rich. They're so successful. I mean, think about it. Morally, they're successful. That's why they have the riches in the first place. Successful people have education. Successful people are incredibly successful in so many things. They're oftentimes prettier than us. They have nicer stuff than us. And you're telling me they don't get into the kingdom of God. 
How can this be, Jesus? Who then can be saved? What Jesus is trying to say is the real question isn't necessarily who can be saved because Jesus can save anybody. But what he's saying is it's not about who can be saved, but how you get saved. He goes on to say this, verse 27, Jesus looked at them again. He's regarding them. He's loving them. He says, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In other words, Jesus is saying, I can save anybody. And how you get saved is God alone saves you. That's it. Your works don't save you. Your morality doesn't save you. Your wealth doesn't save you. Your education doesn't save you. Your success doesn't save you. God saves you. It is impossible with man to be saved from your sins. It is only possible with God. And brothers and sisters, by the way, please don't take that verse to mean that you can jump higher and run faster and do more than you ever thought possible. I can do all things. Anything's possible with God. I want to win an Olympic gold medal in the 100. No, that's not what this verse is saying. Jesus is trying to teach us that only God can save us. You can't save yourself. How does God do that? Oh, yeah. John chapter 3. We know John chapter 3, verse 16, because it's so famous, but I want to jump up a couple verses before that because this is astonishing what God says. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, and let me stop there and just remind us, the people were grumbling at God and complaining about their situation and circumstances, so God sent fiery serpents to bite them. And the people were getting bit, they're walking out of their tent, and they're getting latched on their ankles and calves and hands, they're like, ah, snakes everywhere. People are just wondering, like, can this stop? So God tells Moses in verse 9 of Numbers 21 that he should make a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So he makes this bronze serpent. He puts it on a pole and lifts the pole up. And then if you come out of your tent and you got bit by a snake, you don't just shake it off. What you do is what? Look at the pole. All you have to do is look at the pole. All you have to do is look up. And once you look up, it says you'll, just, you'll, be, you'll live. How easy is that? You don't need antivenom. You don't need a doctor. You just look. How hard is it to look? But what precedes looking is faith. All you have to do is, I believe this. I believe the serpent, which is burning my leg right now and I'm about to die from, I believe if I just look up, I'll be, I'll have life. I have life. The serpent fell off. I'm healed. You see how simple that is? So when Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. So Jesus is lifted up on the cross. So that those of us who are bitten by sin, we need not shake off the sin and do everything we can to overcome our sin. Instead, in the midst of being bit by our sin, look up. And if you look to Jesus and you just simply look at him, God said, you will live. Sin will not destroy you. Verse 16, that whoever believes and whoever just looks at Jesus, he will have eternal life. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son to be lifted up, to be looked upon. So that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in, whoever looks upon Jesus is not condemned. And whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Brothers and sisters, all of us are born in sin. We are already condemned by the sheer truth of our existence. It's not as though you're born spiritually neutral, where it's like, okay, Jesus is before me. Hmm, yes or no? If I choose no, then I will be condemned. No, you're already condemned. You're born condemned. And so if you want life, your only choice is to say yes to Jesus. Look at Jesus. 
or stay condemned. Do you see how much God loves us? He not only loves us enough to expose our sin and confront us with our sin, but he loves us enough to become the curse for our sin for us. He was spiked on a cross. You weren't. Jesus rose from the dead, so you will be if you just look. You just got to look. How is this possible? It's possible with God. For God alone saves. So in the midst of your idolatry, whatever it may be, Jesus is simply saying, in the midst of your idolatry, your sin, look at me. Look upon me. Trust me. Believe me. Your devotion to your idols is because you think your idols will give you something that will satisfy you. You've never been satisfied with them. Why do you think you will be more satisfied if you keep with them? End the idolatry. Look to Jesus and thus be satisfied. That's our only hope. That's why when we come to communion and we take the elements in our hands, the, the, the bread and the cup, we actually look with our eyes. And we see that this bread represents Jesus' body. It's a symbol of his body. Broken, crucified, risen, and coming again for me. And then we look at the cup with the blood and we, oh, this, the shed blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins for me. And tangibly, we look upon Christ with our imagination through the tangible things in our hands and we remember the gospel. And God strengthens us in that moment. So God, would you do that for us, I pray. God, strengthen us in this moment as we approach the bread and the cup. God, strengthen us as we remember the gospel, as we are satisfied with nothing but you. God, rid us of our idolatry. Rid us of the things that our heart is devoted to. And God, help us to see that there is nothing on earth which could ever compare to you. Help us to utter like David that there is nothing on earth that I desire but you. God, help us to seek first your kingdom and the rest will be given to us. Help us to see you as the supremacy in all things. And as we come to the communion table to take hold of these elements to remind ourselves of the gospel, would you strengthen us by your grace? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.